0: Welcome to Survive and Thrive, where Oklahomans reflect on COVID-19 and racism. Survive and Thrive is a 24-episode podcast series where our team will interview Oklahomans across a diverse spectrum as how to survive and thrive during the twofold crisis of the health and racial pandemics. Oklahomans are no stranger to tragedy. The state's history is checkered with traumas such as the Dust Bowl, Tulsa Race Massacre, Trail of Tears, and the Oklahoma City bombing. Out of those tragedies was born the Oklahoma Standard. Now, as the state once again grapples with hardship, this time with COVID-19 and racial heartache, we will hear from multiple Oklahomans who must once again learn to survive and thrive. We are your
1: hosts, Carolee Langford and Brooklyn Wayland.
0: We are joined today by Oklahoma City
1: Councilwoman Nikki Nice, where we will discuss navigating the pandemic and racial injustice as the second woman of color to hold her position.
0: Councilwoman Nice, thank you so much for joining us. First off, I mean, times are kind of a
1: little crazy right now, and for a lot of us, the year 2020 isn't quite exactly what we expected it to be, but how have you been holding up during this pandemic?
2: Well, I wouldn't say uh, 2020 was unexpected for some. I think everybody was hit in a different way from this pandemic, but um, it's been difficult Obviously, being in a new position, still learning every day what your duties are, and then you have a pandemic on top of learning, still learning your duties, it has been quite a, a windstorm, I'll, I'll put it that way, to, to understand and balance uh, mental health and also what this pandemic has brought to our communities, especially our underserved communities, and our communities of color.
1: Like you kind of mentioned, navigating this pandemic, you've not only had to navigate it for yourself, but kind of also for a whole city as a councilwoman. How has that complicated your own coping process or challenged you? Uh,
2: Well, I mean, it's it's challenged me and I'm sure a lot of our other council members in different ways because, again, trying to, to maintain the balance of uh, working to ensure that your people or your community in your city receives the best information, the best uh, assistance and the best options while also just trying to stay sane in the process because mm-hmm. uh, this this definitely takes a toll on you when you look at the numbers every single day when you know uh, how this has truly impacted communities that are across the city. By, by what you see in the conversations that you hear. So um, it's, it's just trying to maneuver through that. That has been a challenge and an opportunity to be able to serve everyone the way that we would want to be served if, if we were uh, someone who was making a decision for, for our lives.
1: Absolutely. And everyone does cope and deal with stress in different ways, but what? how do you deal with the stress and anxiety of the current pandemic that we're in? A lot of rest okay. is key. Oh, yeah. Um,
2: I have had to take a fast from some social media uh, just because of how your mental health takes a toll, reading the comments, which is always the worst thing to do. Mm. Uh, when you read the comments and people tell you that you're not doing enough when uh, you're doing all the things that you know can be done Um, so those are the main things rest and just being able to stay grounded I talk to my mom all every day all the time she's my I'm her only child so we're very close so that that gives me my peace to be able to to talk to her and uh, just in time, the time that I can. Even though, you know, with her being a senior, it's a little difficult for us to have the the mother daughter touch feel hug, you know, console type of relationship with the pandemic. So that's that's been difficult. But other than that, you know, those those folks and just uh, staying um, spiritually grounded as well has has been a tremendous way and and i actually learned to cook without blackening or burning food during this <laughs> pandemic so Love it
0: that.
2: has it has been pretty pretty cool to, yeah. to now concentrate on making a dish and, and making it to perfection so uh, i think that has brought me a different um, a different kind of joy i didn't know existed yeah. although I have a joy of eating anyway. But just <laughs> Me
0: too. <laughs>
2: preparing the food that I can enjoy is is a whole different type of joy.
0: I love that. <laughs> so you talked a little bit about your mom. Can you tell our listeners a little about your background um, and your upbringing?
2: Absolutely. I was born and raised in the ward that I'm serving, Ward Seven, and uh, well, I was born. My mom. Uh, she was a single parent. My dad was present, so uh, I do want people to realize that my, my father, he was he was around, um, and he played a, a vital role in my life as well. But just growing up, I mean, me and my mom, and we'd go to church. My church was down the street from our house, so the church literally raised me, um, and it's, it's just uh, been a joy. So I've been going to the same church since I was six months old. Wow. And being able to grow up in that type of, of extended family, um, it, it means a lot when you look on just now in, these, in this space that I, I hold to, to understand just the, the small things that I didn't really know or realize made huge impacts on my life and, and helping to shape the woman that I have become to be and will continue to become uh, through this journey of life. But that, that, I went to Millwood schools, and I graduated from Northeast High School. Um, I started college at UCO, and my major has always been broadcast journalism, mass communications, and I ended up transferring to Langston University, so I do have a Bachelor of Arts in Broadcast Journalism from Langston University, which is the only HBCU that's in Oklahoma, and on the western side of the United States, so I don't think a lot of people realize that. Um, there are some in Texas, but Oklahoma is probably the furthest west you're going to go for HBCU campus. But, so those are, that's my mom, she she was born and raised in Watonga, Oklahoma, so she's from a small town, and she said when she graduated, she said, I was not looking back. I did not want to stay in the country. So that's how she ended up in Oklahoma City. And she met my dad. And and of course, you know, this beautiful bundle of joy
0: came came a little after. So tell us a little bit more about your career path. What brought you to where you are today?
2: Honestly, I don't know, because I was just doing the work of just being engaged. Uh, I always said, when I went to college, I always knew I was a, I have been and still am a, a sports fanatic. so I wanted to be a sportscaster. And when I started college, I did start taking classes immediately for uh, communications and journalism. and I did at that time, uh, there were some some folks from the college that went to UCL, a couple of them worked for the radio station, local hip-hop station. So he was like, well, I I can try to get you an internship. So I was like, you know, that would be the greatest thing as a freshman. So we went to go talk to the program director and the program director said, nah, you know, I'm going to need, I will need you to get a couple of years under your belt to make sure this is something that you really want to do. So I'm not going to lie. I was crushed because I was like, I already know what I want to do. This is, you know, this is the path to get me where I want to go. Sure. So needless to say, um, I kept going, and as I talked about my church, my church had a broadcast on Saturdays for another local Christian station, so I would go up there on Saturdays and help out first and, and just learn radio and understand it, and I found that I said, oh, I think I like radio, one, <laughs> people can't see you. And yeah. two, yeah, you can you can pretty much do what you want. You can wear what you want. You can have all these kind of facial expressions. Nobody can see
1: <laughs> them.
2: And you can be an authentic person, in my opinion. I just felt, you know, that's a, a very authentic field. Yeah. So I kept pursuing it, and I um, ended up. Doing with the gospel station, going to gospel music workshops and interviewing and talking to some really known gospel artists. And from there, I was working at that time, I was still working at Starbucks, so I was a barista for a long time. And my the gentleman I told you that told me I needed to wait, he happened to come in and order coffee he ordered an americano hazelnut americano never mm. forget so i was making his drink and i said uh so can i get that internship now and he he kind of looked at me like who are you <laughs> and, and he's like well and then we kind of talked for we chatted for a minute and uh he said well call me this week and let's talk so I did, and by the end of the week, I was in his office, and by the next week, I was interning at the hip-hop station, and from there, after my internship, uh, I was employed and hired, so I spent 11 and a half years at the radio station doing many different things, and from there, that, that brought the uh, TV aspect of me going to Fox 25 and doing Lifestyle and Entertainment co-hosting. Uh, but in the in the meantime of that, you know, I was on a show called the My Talk Show. So we talked about local local politics. We talked about everything. People would call in and talk about the most random stuff. But <laughs> we would talk local, national, and world politics, which got me interested in a different way of politics. I've always been politically engaged. I've been registered to vote since I was 18 when I stepped on uh, UCO's campus sure. and got registered that first week of Stampede Week, so I've always been engaged in in new political process, but this was a different way for me to be informed and engaged, and with the Open Mic Talk Show, we would interview local elected officials, we would interview different people from across the country, so that was a different type of relationship that we were able to build and gather with local elected officials from the community. So from there, just being a part of my uh, political affiliation, uh, going to the national convention and uh, just, again, learning and understanding what a political engagement is and, and just the necessary steps so I could help candidates or just inform people while I was on the air of things that were going on politically, locally.
1: Yeah.
2: And when this came around for me to run for office, I I and got granted again. I this was never in in my foresight to run for office. I was like, I'm very comfortable doing radio, doing TV, and supporting whoever the candidate can be. Um, and the it came about from our previous councilman abruptly having to resign, and I said. Who's going to do this? You know, we need somebody to run. Who's going to run? Yeah. And a few people were like, why don't you do it? And I was like, yeah, I'm not <laughs> doing that. I was, no, I'm not doing that. Um, and from there, it just kind of happened. So the folks that encouraged me said, we'll help you uh, all the way. And they did. And that's how we are here.
1: Wow. So being a councilwoman was something that you never really pictured yourself doing? No absolutely not so can you tell me a little bit about why you are so passionate about what you do now and how it serves Oklahoma
2: I've always been passionate about people um the community and me running was my way to give back to the community that has given to me in in a way that I'm I can never repay So, I just wanted to to bring the things and and bring a different breath of, of air to, to this space to help move our city and our community forward. So those are the things that I I wanted to do. Obviously I came at a time where it was, it's a, it's a lot going on for uh, the community of Northeast Oklahoma city, where there is a tremendous void in lack of resources and in retail and amenities. And it's it's working through the system and the barriers to try to restore a lot of those things that have been taken away, uh, systemically and systematically. So, it's it's very complicated. And, and not to say I didn't think it would be complicated, but uh, when you have to fight the political realms of the simple things that you need for for your your folks that have have said they need these things uh, instead of going outside of, of their community to get them, you know, it, it's difficult to have those conversations because people don't look at your community the way that you do.
0: Right. So
2: th- those have been a lot of the things that we're looking at, but that was the main reason why I wanted to, I decided to do it at the end was because I, I did. I wanted to give back to my community and in a way that I could and and move the needle in a, in a direction forward and, and just pick up the baton that the previous council members had, had been running with and, and get it to the finish line with some of the projects that we
1: were wanting. Absolutely. Thank you. So changing topics just a little bit, Oklahoma has gone through so many different tragedies, um, like the Trail of Tears, the Tulsa Race Massacre, the Oklahoma City bombing, the Dust Bowl. How do you think these tragedies has shaped the people of Oklahoma? That's
2: a loaded question. Yes, <laughs> um, because there's
1: there's
2: so much trauma. I, I think in Oklahoma. If you just look up, you can see it, you know, because of, of everything that you mentioned. It's a different kind of trauma when you think of the Tulsa Race Massacre for African Americans uh, compared to our indigenous communities that have experienced different w- situations. And it's a, a different trauma for those who lived through the bombing. And I'm sure you, you young ladies uh, are probably probably born after the bombing, but I was a freshman in high school at Northeast when the bombing occurred, so I just, I remember it so vividly that we had just randomly opened the door, and mind you, Northeast High School was off of 30th and Kelly, and we're talking about downtown Oklahoma City, where the bombing happened, Mm -hmm. Um, and so over 30 blocks away is where we were, and I just remember us opening the back door of the gym. I can't remember why we did it, but we did, and we all heard just this, boom, and it was like, what was that? Um, And needless to say, that afternoon, we we figured out what happened, and I remember just the the panicking of one of my friends in particular, because her mom worked in the AT&T building across the street. And she was crying profusely because we could not watch TV. We could not make phone calls out. We didn't know what was going on. So she was very fearful that something may have happened to her mom. Sure. And uh, thankfully and prayerfully, uh, her mom was fine because that building had some, I believe, window shattered. but no harm like the, the Murrah building. But, you know, those are tragedies and traumas, even though. I, will, I was not uh, truly impacted as far as a family member is concerned, or knowing personally anyone uh, that had passed away. I carry that that same trauma because I experienced it. I was you know I was young when it happened, and I I remember a few few years ago going to the New York Twin Towers. They have a museum, and I remember walking through there, and I mean, literally, anxiety came over me mm. because of experiencing what happened in 1995, mm-hmm. and I just thought that was really. It just struck me as very interesting um, because of the. It was the same type of trauma and anxiety of 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 an impact of, of what can can happen instantly uh, with with no one knowing. So, you know, I and I think of. As we celebrate, we commemorate the 100 year of Tulsa Race Massacre, the trauma that still exists of now still looking to find graves of of folks who passed away or perished in the massacre 100 years ago. Uh, so it's a lot of of reconciliation that needs to be done for Oklahoma and telling our story, a, a lot of recognizing and understanding that folks who who we don't give credit to were were truly some of the the four fathers and mothers uh, of this state that uh, we need to tell their stories a lot more than we do. So hopefully, with with these types of conversations and. And you all continuing to do podcasts uh, can help to speak to that history and bring out uh, more of these unheard and untold stories of those that have come before us, so we can tell and change the narrative of Oklahoma history.
0: So, how can Oklahoma kind of be honest about our history, whether that be the good, the bad, or the ugly, and? foster these conversations to be able to make us um, move forward and grow from our past tragedies and traumas? We have to talk
2: about them. I think a lot, a lot of things we don't talk about, we don't talk about, in my opinion, we don't talk about like Green Curran, who was the first African-American before statehood to serve in the legislature. And, and this man was working to pass a, a Jim, anti-Jim Crow law. He was working uh, to pass a law because one of his friends had been clubbed by some white men, and it only it failed in the house by one vote. And we're talking about the late 1800s, so those types of stories you don't really hear. You know, you don't hear about those stories. You don't hear about A. C. Hamlin, uh, who was the first elected after statehood, but due to the grandfather clause and literacy test, he was pretty much exile from being able to run again you know you don't hear about those stories you don't hear about uh, the women of the Oklahoma City federated uh, color Federation of color women's clubs you don't hear about the Oklahoma Federation of color women's clubs where their banner hangs right now in uh, the Smithsonian the black Museum in, in Washington DC so we we see it but we don't know the story so it, it, you know again it's those types of stories. We don't talk about the fact that if you go downtown in Bricktown, how that was the place in the area where blacks were once restricted to. They couldn't even go past some of those spaces, let alone purchase a home. So looking at even a uh, third base of, of the uh, Chickasaw Bricktown Ballpark, that was the original home of Douglas High School. We don't talk about those things. So it's, it's being able to again, tell those stories. We have to do a lot of research, that's the unfortunate part, but it's necessary research again to tell the story and utilizing the places that are able to help tell that history, like the Oklahoma History um, Museum, the and actually the Historical Society, finding those papers and in those articles, looking at at those things and, and resonating. Uh, some of those stories, and I was reading one of the, a black dispatch from the early 1900s, and its uh, it just took my breath because literally some of those same stories that were published in that newspaper in the early 1900s are still subjects that we are dealing with today as we're talking about the police killing African-Americans that was happening in the paper. They had it documented things that were happening back then, Jim Crow laws and and lynchings and different things like that. So it's, again, connecting the stories, being sure we are talking to the people that are able to help us tell those stories, and it's very complicated to do that because we haven't been, in my opinion, this is all my opinion, though, that we haven't been able to really, or, or maybe I just don't know where it is. I'll say that. Maybe I don't know where this is to, to see or hear uh, these stories that reference some of the, the pre-statehood and early statehood stories of, of folks who helped to truly build the fabric of Oklahoma. And I reference Oklahoma City because that's where I'm from. And talking about the sundown towns, you know, talking about, like, Dr. George Henderson, Adam Norman, who was one of the first African Americans to purchase home, a home, in, in Norman and how we still have <laughs> sundown towns uh, probably on record that we, we need to work through and even covenants. We still have covenants in our, our city structure, in neighborhoods that say you can't lease or, or sell to African Americans. So, you know, it's, it's being able to expose those things, but we have to look for them. So that's, it's, a, it's a two-way conversation. One, we have to want to look for it. We have to look for it. Um, and we
0: have to find the willing folks to tell the stories, yeah. i I've you talked about how racism has like kind of been woven into Oklahoma history throughout time, and it's obviously something we're still dealing with today. how How do we focus in on that? and after these conversations that you are saying we need to be having, how do we grow from that? How do we move past that and kind of accept those parts of Oklahoma history but move forward, regardless?. <laughs>
2: Well, again, just if we're telling the story, if we recognize, acknowledge, it's easier for us to to tell the story and change it. And, And I think that's what we're experiencing because folks are, you know, in different aspects and realms are saying, oh, that was the past. You know, that's not today. When in fact, while, yes, some of that is the past, there are still some spaces and pieces of that that exist today. So, until we are able to to talk those things through, acknowledge again, do the homework, the history work of it, and, and understand why it's important for us not to repeat these particular incidents or ways that folks have been disenfranchised, then we're talking about a conversation. But again, you have to have people in place to, one, do the work, and two, again, be able to listen, but also be able to accept and help to break those same barriers that have been
1: built. And we kind of have been talking with our interviewees about what it means to be Oklahoma strong and the Oklahoman standard. What does that mean to you?
2: Um, it means a multitude of things for me. I mean, Oklahoma strong is is obviously um, resiliency through all of the things that have taken place throughout our our history and the fabric of Oklahoma. Um, and as an African American, it, it means a different thing for me because I I stand on the shoulders of of the folks who who came before to even tread the water for me to be. So I, when I think of Oklahoma Strong, I, I think of Clara Looper. You know, I, I think of the, the folks who build the all-black town. That's what Oklahoma Strong means to me, because they had to persevere uh, throughout the many barriers and changes that were constantly placed against them uh, to do anything. So to me, again, those that's how I define Oklahoma strong, the the people whose shoulders I stand, um, the Oklahoma standard as well. In the same same realm, I, I consider uh, the previous councilwoman, Willa Johnson, being the first African-American woman to ever serve our city council since it incorporated in 1890, serving in 1993 and being elected and, and me coming behind her as the second. Uh, in 2018, so mm-hmm. only been two of us, you know, so to me, that's Oklahoma, that's Oklahoma strong, <laughs> because we have to weather these storms in, in spaces that, one, we're told we don't belong in, and, and two, without a lot of folks being able to, to really pave the way for us, and when I say that, I mean, again, just one person being being before me, as far as a, a woman of color or black woman, however you want to define that, in in this space. So that that's what I, I see as Oklahoma Strong. I, again, I think of Clara Looper being the, the woman to help to integrate uh, Oklahoma, pretty much Oklahoma, uh, with the sit ins in, in, at the Catch Drug Store in the late 1950s. And finding out that she is the reason that our city even has le- or resulted in the conversation of a contract bargaining because of her efforts in the sanitation workers' strike in the late 1960s. So that's that's what I define as Oklahoma strong and Oklahoma standard. The the people that look like me that have come before me that have helped to shape what Oklahoma is and where Oklahoma can go. But I also, again, I think about those tragedies, too, um, because we have had to be resilient beyond those those tragedies and triumphant and, and, and come together, and, and we did. We came together in a, in a way that warms your heart to, to know that our our city and our state could come together at that time. It was like no barriers at that time for people to... to literally say hello, uh, wrap your arms around each other, and just say it's going to be okay. Yeah. So those are the things I think about when I I think of Oklahoma standard and Oklahoma strong.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we did kind of talk a little bit about paving a new path for Oklahoma. So rather than reverting back to the things we were once before, how can Oklahomans change our path to find a new normal? and however that might look like?
2: I don't know how I can effectively answer that because everyone's normal is going to be different Mm -hmm. and I I think as we recognize and acknowledge just the many things that have taken place in the last uh, six, seven, eight months, it's it's crucial for, in my opinion, uh, the things that have been exposed to be corrected as we look at uh, healthcare disparities, as we look at uh, food insecurities, as we look at more environmental racism and environmental justice efforts, as we look at a uh, systemic racism and, and uh, social justice efforts. This has this time frame has really shaped our country, and our state, and our cities in a in a totally different way. So. I I think, obviously, it's up to the individual, us as individuals, to look inside, deep inside of ourselves to understand how we are different, and that's okay. But how can we still, as we talk about the Oklahoma standard, provide that for our neighbor? How can we, again, look at all of these things that have have bubbled and, and come to the to the top to cook, how can we uh, take those out and make a, a beautiful recipe from it? How can we bind those things together to bring something better and something different? So I think, obviously, in my opinion, that's that's up to us individually to look inside ourselves to work through that. But it's going to take a change of heart for, for everyone, uh, even myself, in, in different ways and aspects, to be able to... See what uh, a different normal or a different newness can bring in an effort to have a better Oklahoma city and a better Oklahoma.
1: So what are you expecting from Oklahomans after this?
2: I don't uh, you know. I don't know. <laughs> and I say that respectfully because it's been difficult traveling through this process. Um, Absolutely.
1: Absolutely.
2: I would, like I said, my I've had to from my own mental health get off of social media because uh, the the trolls are real <laughs> and they don't hold back in, in things they say. I mean I've, I've been getting nasty postcards and, and letters.
1: So I, I don't I don't know. I don't really know how to answer that question. I, I really don't. That's fair. Well you have answered everything that I think we have is there anything else that we need to know or that we should have asked
2: well i'll I'll leave with leave you all with with this thought. I think of uh, Ralph Ellison and how he said he was an invisible man and he wanted to be visible um, I think through this tragedy and the the tragedy of of the social justice conversations that we have to have and The pandemic, it brings to the forefront how people have not been seen, and Mm. that's where, again, the the mindset has to change for all of us of how, one, we see ourselves, but two, we see uh, our brother or our sister that's next to us, whether they look like us or not. And, again, I know those are are obviously tough conversations for anybody to have, but... Hopefully, hearts and minds can change through this, but it's going to take more effort. It's going to take sensitive leadership. It's going to take folks, even the underserved and, and those you don't see in, in particular leadership roles. We're to, our communities are going to have to see representation that looks like them in order to truly see uh, some change in and, and subject matters brought to the forefront. To, to work through all of the challenges that we face right now as it deals with racial injustice, social injustice, and, and even the pandemic and, and health access, all of those different things.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you, Councilwoman Nice, for taking the time to sit down and chat with us today. We really appreciate it.
2: No problem. I appreciate you ladies for asking me. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to Survive and Thrive. Due to the upcoming holiday, we will not be releasing a new episode next week. Make sure you tune back in December 2nd as we chat with Joseph Haruz, president of the University of Oklahoma, about COVID-19 on campus. You can find us anywhere you listen to your podcast by searching Survive in OKLA. We are your hosts, Carolee and Brooklyn. Join us every Wednesday for new episodes. Also participating in this podcast project are Kimberly Burke, our manager, Jesse Smith, researcher and writer, G. Schwan Fan, and Robert Luiza, the social media coordinators, and Miranda Vondale, our audio engineer. This podcast is presented by Gaylord News in collaboration with the Institute for the Study of Human Flourishing.